There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Why Aren't You Adopt Yet? I'm Hannah Ayub and this week I'm joined by Oz Ismail. Hello! So, how have you been, Oz? I've been good. I mean, I obviously uh, moved my life to a different country (laughs) and then uh, immediately after I did that, uh, a pandemic decided to happen. So that was fun. (laughs) And then this week, uh, my next door neighbour... As in, like, I live in an apartment block, so it's literally the the flat next to mine had a fire. So I was just like ready to see my entire life go up in flames. Um, uh, I'm thinking yeah. it that your entire life didn't go up to, in flames. It didn't. No, no, I still have a roof and walls, That's which good. is great. Yeah, um, especially if you have to stay within those walls most of the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was just like, this is madness if this is the next thing that's going to happen. But no, it's all fine. Basically, someone had a kitchen fire. um, And because it was right next door to me, there was a lot of smoke in my apartment. And yeah, (laughs) but uh, but it was quite quite a lot of drama. And, you know, there were firemen, but they weren't as sexy as people make out to be. (laughs) Oh, a bit disappointing then. Yeah, for sure. Like those calendars, man, they lie to you. <laughs> uh, what what are we what are we chatting about today? So, do you remember Roma Agrawal? Oh yeah, 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 uh, yeah. She built the shard. Is what I keep telling everyone. I know that's not like <laughs> what she does, but <laughs> she built the shard. She wrote a book about building the shard called Built. Right? I mean, Built's about so much more than just building the shard. <laughs> like it's an amazing book. Everyone should read it, including you. I mean, I have it. <laughs> Well, now's a really good time to read it. What else have it's you got true. to do? It's very true. It's true. Also, interestingly, I was at my friend's house here in Portland and he was telling me about, uh, oh, he was reading because he's an architect and he was saying, oh, I've got this book and I was reading about different parts of London. I was like, 
I know the person who wrote that book. Here's a picture <laughs> with me and the author. Ha ha ha! And I just completely name dropped Roma. But yeah, Roma's great. Yeah, so Roma, the person that you know, we've both just been sort of fangirl fanboying over, um, as well as being an amazing author and a great writer. She's got a really interesting personal story to share. Um, she's been really open about her journey through infertility, which is something that affects so many people. We've been really lucky to be able to chat to her during her IVF journey. So, Oz, you, Alex and Sahail actually sat down with her before she gave birth, right? Yeah, she was pregnant. Uh, she hadn't, she wasn't about to give birth, but yeah, she was definitely pregnant then. Um, oh yeah, that's also, now I remember the day that we recorded, it was uh, just pissing it down with rain and our studio location changed and like Alex felt so bad that he had to like get an Uber uh, to get Roma from one studio to the other because like we didn't want to make a pregnant woman walk in the rain <laughs> and he was getting so this just like worked up about smart it. Material it collective made by nerds funded by the listeners. Roma, you are with child. I am pregnant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why are you so scared to say the word Alex? <laughs> He's he's afraid of children. Yeah, I am a little bit afraid of anyone. Anyway. I'm terrified. Yeah, of children. Yeah, but you have a children. <laughs> <laughs> she likes to face her fears. <laughs> um, okay, so I was about to say um, when did you become pregnant? But I was really well. I'm really. I like that you have notes about pregnant there. Um, what was that like? Because you were saying how you engineered a baby, mm. your baby, in fact. Yeah. So. What does that mean? <laughs> so um, I have an IVF baby, which is why it's an engineered baby, because mm. basically without awesome science, I wouldn't have been able to become pregnant. So first of all, I should say, I didn't really know if I wanted kids or not. So I haven't been one of those people that thought all my whole life that my dream was to have children. So at some point in my early 30s, we said, oh, maybe we should think about it if we want to have kids. My husband was really keen. He's got quite a small family in the UK. He's an only child. And I said, fine, let, you know, let's have a go. Let's, let's try this out. I think it was about three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, it became clear over time that it wasn't happening. And then I had some investigations done because I, I basically, I knew what the timeline is. And th there's kind of these guidelines you have to follow with the NHS and that's what they do. So I made sure that I got the tests done as soon as I could that were required. Start with blood tests. Then they said, oh, I think you have endometriosis, which, which is a condition where um, I guess the lining of the womb kind of finds it, its way into other parts of your body and, and causes lots of issues with, with, with you know, pain and with your periods and stuff, but it can cause issues with infertility as well. So they do um, an investigative surgery for that. I had to wait 10 months what? to get that procedure done. So oh. that was a big, long chunk. How come? Um, NHS. Oh, wow. It's, it's, you know, unfortunately just so stretched that it took 10 months for me to get to that stage. But until they did that, so while they were doing that investigation, they also, they basically push dye into your uterus and check Sorry, does what? that dye, <laughs> that's what they do. And they basically want to see that the dye goes through your tubes and spills out. And 
what it transpired is that my fallopian tubes are blocked. So there's like a physical thing that's basically stopping the egg from coming in down into the uterus and getting fertilized. Mm. I think, so I've, I've just got some stats. So they say, depending on where the stats come from, up to one in six couples suffer with infertility. Wow. Which is huge. I mean, that, that's a lot, but we don't really talk about it that much in in the public realm. And what's even more interesting is that nearly half of those infertility cases are male factor. Mm. And again, there's a, usually an assumption mm. that if someone's having IVF, that, oh, there must be something wrong with the woman. And so I've got another stat here, which is from the Human Reproductive Update. And it says in Western countries, sperm counts have dropped by over 50% from 1973 to 2011. Wow. wow. So that's, mm. they attribute that. Obviously, there's still research happening to um, lifestyle, to environment, smoking, drinking, diet, that kind of stuff. So another piece of research that they're only really looking at now, more recently, is declining fertility in men. So we we always talk about this age, you know, 35 for women, that, you know, your fertility falls off a cliff and it's much more hard harder to get pregnant. And actually what they're saying is that as men age, their sperm quality also declines. It's at a slower rate than it is for women, but it's not true that when you're 50, 60 years old, you know, you're going to have the same quality of and then chances of getting pregnant as you would when you were much younger. Mm. So, um, you know, you've obviously talked about Inferior, the book that Angela Saini wrote in previous episode. And one of the things that really kind of struck me about this is that almost in every other sphere, men's health is more well researched, but it looks like an infertility. Actually, the opposite's the case. To me, I think it's also culturally, like, it's interesting mm-hmm. when I think about the time when I was growing up in Sri Lanka and if you, like, heard about someone not being able to have kids, again, that's the narrative that people have. Did you ever face, like, any cultural, like, just because, you, the, like, like you said, there are different ways people can have kids, right? But that's another issue that culturally people face, I think. Did you ever have any of those kind of barriers when you were, like, <laughs> um, approaching, say, like, IVF? Was there any stigma attached to that? You are either chuckling happily <laughs> or in memory of something you've just got over. I was just, I was kind of laughing at the question in the fact that I'm an Indian woman who had been married for about eight years and was over the age of 30. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, of course. I, yeah, <laughs> people were. So, so even before we started trying to have kids, I would have aunties and, and, and you appreciate that aunties are not necessarily people who are related to me. They are. Just people kind on the street. They're, they're people. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. We understand. <laughs> this podcast is a safe space for that. So aunties. <laughs> aunties coming up to me and said, oh, so what have the doctors said about your chances of getting pregnant? And part of me wanted to say, well, if I did ask a doctor, they would probably advise me to stop using contraception because we haven't started trying yet. <laughs> you know? Um, so there was obviously an assumption that, of course, she started trying for kids because that's what people do Mm. so that must have been kind of difficult like having pressure from outside and stuff yeah i think that that was frustrating and of course it was always me that got the pressure and not my husband Mm. um and the assumption also was that i was the one saying that i didn't want to have kids Mm. which 
was partially true in my case. You know, you've, there's always time for your career. There's always time to do everything else. But my husband never got, that. I think, that level of pressure, mm. except maybe from a couple of people. Mm. Um, and I think in terms of the emotional support and stuff, it is it is such a difficult time. Of course it is for the woman, but it is also very difficult for the man. And we would have conversations where, you know, my husband was obviously upset finding things difficult, but he always felt, is it right for me to tell Roma that because of everything she's going through, she's injecting herself, she's taking all these drugs, she's taking all these hormones. Um, so I actually think in some ways there's a, quite an Instagram community, there's fertility networks, there's meeting spaces people can go. And it's only in the last year or so that I've seen the the men actually getting involved, being really open about this stuff, because it is really tough. Mm. And then subsequently getting the emotional support for it. So for me, I think what's been really interesting throughout this whole process is, is first of all, because I'm in such a, you know, we don't let our gender define us type of relationship. But in this situation, our gender completely defined um, our experiences of the whole process. So, so yeah, so personally, I would say there's a difference between what they call a fresh cycle and a frozen cycle. So the fresh cycle is when they're actually trying to um, stimulate your ovaries to produce more eggs so they can try and retrieve as many eggs as they can. Um, normally, we only get one mature egg per month, you know, which obviously results in your period. So now they're trying to say, well, actually, let's try and get more. Let's get eight. Let's get 15 or, you know, wow. so they're quite a large number. Um and so you're taking a lot of hormones basically to stimulate your body into kind of going crazy and saying, I'm going to let all of these follicles develop, which normally doesn't happen. So you inject various forms of you know, female hormones to make that happen. So I found like on a personal level during that time, I wasn't sleeping well. Um, I was quite kind of mental health becomes quite a strong thing to think about you know um it's quite distressing you don't know if it's going to work you, and, and there's a lot of unknowns and you know unpredictable things that you're waiting for and then the hormones as well like if if i was ever convinced that hormones can change you know your mood your personality my god going through ivf has taught me it's taught me that Oh my God, can you imagine having aunties ask about your sex life? I mean, aunties don't ask me about my sex life because I'm a boy, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, just, I know, I don't, I don't actually want to even like think about that. <laughs> just the thought makes me cringe so much. But um, so in this, uh, in that last bit, Roma chats about follicles quite a lot. And obviously she's not talking about like hair follicles, right? What is she talking about? So follicles are these small fluid-filled sacs inside the ovaries, and they each follicle contains an immature egg. And at puberty, there are hundreds of thousands of these follicles, which all have the potential to release an unfertilized mature egg. In a typical menstrual cycle, one follicle will grow and get bigger until it breaks and releases the egg. But in IVF, drugs stimulate the ovaries to produce more eggs than usual so that these can be collected.
Um, but you're saying about um, sort of harvesting follicles <clears throat> and sort of these unmature, unripened eggs and stuff. But like, um, do your body like when that happens again? I I do not go through these things. But like, do you, does your body like feel as if you're having a period, or like is that how it works? It's a good question. So, um, so I never really completely under- appreciated this. This again shows like the lack of knowledge I have about my own body. But your ovaries are actually quite tiny, so I think they're about the size of a walnut. And then I think your follicle that has your egg in it, when it gets kind of matured, is about the size of a grape. Okay, so there's you know little things that we're talking about. Um, I had about. 14 to 16 follicles on each of my ovaries when I was being stimulated. So what was once a walnut size is now the size of a bunch of grapes with like 14 grapes on it. So you have ruined every single fantasy of being like an Egyptian pharaoh eating grapes (laughs) off the vine. Absolutely ruined. (laughs) Thank you, Roma. Thank you so much. You asked the question. Yeah. (laughs) Should not have made this personal, but okay, so you had... <laughs> so so physically you feel like you've got these two big lumps in your body that you didn't have there before. Mm. Um, and, and then my skin went all kind of teenager, so like really oh, oily, no. a little bit of acne, kind oh. of... Because you're, 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 you're putting all these hormones into your body. Mm. And then at some point, what they basically do is... So they, so they scan you... Um, every other day they want to check how your follicles are going so there's lots of appointments involved lots of waiting around in hospitals and so on and then they also take your blood test because they're checking your hormone levels so every day they call you with oh you need to take this much of injection today and it might change on a daily basis so there's lots of being very very organized so I had loads and loads of reminders in my phone to make sure I didn't miss any of my doses and stuff Um, lots of voicemails from nurses so, you know, there's a lot to kind of think about physically while you're trying to also do your job and kind of live li- live your life. And then you go in one day and they, what they do is they sedate you and then um, they basically insert a giant needle um, up your passage. Try to think of how I want to say that. <laughs> but big needle goes in and they drain all these follicles and then they go and they count how many eggs they've managed to get out. Okay? So you get X number of eggs and then it's like the Hunger Games for the next five days where they fertilize the eggs. So that's where the man comes in. That's all they need to do. <laughs> I can handle that. Deposit the sample. <laughs> that gets done. So, um, so your man deposited his sample. Right. And then they, <laughs> and then they fertilize the eggs. Um, so there's two ways that you can actually create the embryos or to fertilize the eggs. And, and one of them is you basically mix the sperm in with the eggs and then the strongest swimmer wins sort of situation. Um, there's, there's a procedure that's called ICSI and do not ask me what that stands for because I have no idea. So one second, ICSI, it's I-C-S-I and it stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Certain medical conditions or, or situations require that you literally take a single sperm and inject it into the egg. And so you're talking about kind of imagining the person in the lab, like I, I, it just kind of blows my mind. Because How they would have done it with that precision. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it unbelievable. It seems like a micro-injection. But obviously what happens is that they've got a number of eggs, not all of them will be mature. They then try and, you know, as they're fertilizing it, not all of them will be of the right quality that can mm. actually produce an embryo mm. and then each embryo so some of them die some of them don't develop so they basically call you every couple of days and tell you 
you know, this is how many embryos you have left, which is wow. why I call it like the Hunger Games because mm. Mm. they'll call you the first day and said, so I had I had eighteen eggs. Then the next day they said, well, fifteen of them were mature. Then they said ten of them have fertilized, and then they said six of them are doing really well, and the two of them are a bit questionable. So I actually came out really amazingly well because I've 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 got I you know I got kind of six or seven embryos out of this process. People mm. can get zero, they can get one, they can get two. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You have this dreaded the 2WW, the 2 week wait. Hashtag #2WW which is um, the time you have to wait between the embryo being put back into your body and the time you find out whether it's worked or not. So basically, I called it Schrodinger's embryo. <laughs> what? I mean, wow. That's, I love that. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> that is so excellent. Excellent. That was that. Is that, that is excellent. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so it is literally Schrodinger's embryo because you, it's, it could either be alive or dead, but you can't measure it. So until you measure it, you don't know what's happened. It's either worked or it hasn't. And then you basically take this pregnancy test at home. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just amazing how like everything kind of hinges on this pregnancy test. So obviously I had, I had a kind of incomplete first round. So I didn't do one then. The second one came back negative. And then the third one came back positive. And then what they don't tell you is that that kind of, utter elation that you feel that it's worked lasts about two days before you then start looking up the rates of miscarriage. Mm. Because of course, a lot of women that have IVF treatment will have miscarriages. And, you know, with, with the whole kind of community that you see online, there's just absolutely horrific stories of the number of miscarriages that you have. It, so, so basically, I think what I'm trying to say is that you go through these stages step by step, and then each step brings its own kind of surprises and devastations and you know you, you kind of deal with one thing at a time i think 
it's really interesting hearing about how she's navigated all of this. Yeah, you know what? I was just thinking, I don't really hear enough about this because like, you know, so many people must go through this, but, you know, you don't, I don't think I like hear people talk about it in this much detail in the way that Roma's been chatting to us about. Yeah, it's true. Like, I don't think you talk about it enough. And also, the more I think about it, I don't think I know anyone who isn't white who's gone through IVF. That's interesting. But like, clearly, people do. Yeah, exactly. And the stats are interesting, though, because like, there's data from 2018 that shows that the percentages of different ethnic groups going through IVF was actually close to the national percentages for the different ethnic groups here in the UK. Wow, okay, so that then clearly says it's happening, we're just not talking about it. Yeah, it seems to be changing. So um, there's a doctor, uh, Dr. Yukob Kalef, who is medical director of the Assisted Conception Unit at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital. So that's in London, right? Yeah, yeah. So he's talked about cultural issues faced by patients from South Asian or African backgrounds. And he says that actually those cultural issues seem to be changing. So patients now come to the clinic who have been referred by their friends, which means that they've been talking about their infertility issues, because you have to be talking for someone to suggest a service. Um, And so, you know, he said that the attitude isn't the same as it used to be. Wow. Okay. So people just have this hang up about, or like people from ethnic minorities, it sounds like, Mm have this hang up about talking about it. I mean, also, I guess if you think about it from like culturally, um, people get very excited about having kids like, you know, the proper within quotation marks way. Mm. And even the way it's depicted, like if you think about Asian, like, uh, like dramas and soaps and stuff where two people get married and the next day, the woman's like throwing up and she's instantly pregnant. Yeah, of course, no one ever has any infertility issues, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, it's like so, so fertile that yeah, they just get yeah. immediately like impregnated. Yeah, and obviously there's like no premarital sex whatsoever, which is why no one ever gets pregnant until the wedding night. <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> so despite the fact that, you know, here in the UK, IVF is gradually becoming less stigmatised, even within sort of, you know, um, different cultural groups, very open conversation that we've had with Roma is still not that common, especially not in the public sphere. IVF and infertility are still stigmatised within a lot of communities, and the experiences of ethnic minority individuals are less likely to be represented in the media or in popular culture. It's a bit strange because in with, with certain circles, I was completely open that this was what was happening because I didn't think I could hide such a massive thing for so long. I knew that it was going to really affect um, affect me and my husband. We didn't travel much. We barely saw our friends for a while because I had to like inject at 8, 8 or 9 p.m. So you're always kind of... And then when I would go to my friend's houses for dinner, I'd be like... I need to go do these injections. Can you give me some ice or whatever? So on one hand, a lot of my friends knew that it was happening. And so some of them would ask me, you know, how's it going? 
you know, how, how do you feel, all these kind of stuff. So, so a few people actually did know that I was pregnant before the kind of the usual people wait for 12 weeks. On the other hand, I didn't tell a lot of my extended family um, because of their worry and their stress. And then I knew that I see them quite often and I didn't want them to kind of keep being concerned about it and asking me about it because I knew it was going to be quite a long process. So it, yeah, that, that was, that was quite strange. And I had, um, this is not normal. I had five scans by the time I was 13 weeks pregnant because I just had to keep checking basically every couple of weeks. Is it still there? Is it still alive? What's Mm -hmm. happening? Mm -hmm. Um, and that was the only way I could keep my sanity. Because pregnancies are super stressful. And I think with everything that you went through, like it's quite rightly mm. that you'd go for extra like scans and stuff. But, you know. But it's the whole thing about like, uh, I understand like you wanting to keep it into like to limited number of people when you initially go through it because you then have to relive it every time you tell somebody about it as well. And it's incredibly stressful. Yeah. And I, I actually, so I did tell my boss a lot of people, a lot of women don't even tell anybody at work. And I don't know how they get through it because mm. at least my boss knew. And I had told four or five people at work, my friends. And it just, you know, if I was just having a really bad day, I could just say to my boss, look, I, I just can't come in today. Like I just, I think some people thought I had cancer, <laughs> like genuinely, because I was That's going deep. to hospital so often and having like people were starting to get quite worried. And I had mm. to keep saying to them, no, I promise you mm. I'm completely fine. And then some of them kind of worked out, okay, it's probably IVF. <laughs> but then you start like really worrying people when they know on yeah, a daily basis that you're going yeah, to all these appointments yeah. mm. and if they don't know why. I mean, did they tell you that they thought you had cancer? Okay. No. Like, they, <laughs> like they didn't do a whip round They're just really you. concerned. Like people were really worried. They're like, are you okay? Is she okay? And um, yeah. So I think the people that knew I was doing lots of hospital appointments, I, I kind of told them basically so that they would stop stressing out so much. And they wouldn't bring you like a cake, get, a get well soon cake or anything. <laughs> So with what you know now, looking back on it, um, is there anything that you'd tell, not tell other people, but you'd wish you'd known um, from the start? Um, I think I I had expected it to be physically very difficult. I, I'd completely underestimated how mentally difficult it would be. So I would definitely recommend that people, you know, so, so, so and I realize affordability is a problem to get therapy, for example, but my clinic offered a round of therapy per IVF cycle, which isn't really enough, but at least it's something. So there are, you know, options available out there, but I would just say you need to figure out how you're going to create that support system that you need to get through it. Mm-hmm. Whether that's telling people, not telling people, telling work, not telling work, whatever it is that you require, because um, you do need time for yourself. Has been I, I would say in the last year or so I have noticed so there's a few different podcasts that talk about 
infertility. Um, I've talked about the kind of online social media communities. They're having fertility weeks and mm. months where loads of the mainstream newspapers and media were publishing loads and loads of articles and information about infertility. Mm. I think it was at the end of last year or earlier this year. Um, and then people are just starting to come out and talk about their experiences. So I, I think that's really important. Now they're even talking about actually educating students a bit more about it. Mm. Because usually at school, it's like, oh, you, you're just going to get pregnant. You'd be really, really careful. And they talk so much about the contraception, all of that side of things. What I think they do less of is actually saying, well, these are the realities and these are the stats. And this mm. is what can happen both to men and to women. Mm. Um, so I think... I think I'm definitely seeing a lot more of these discussions like, being had. Like normalisation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is fantastic. Okay, so just listening to Roma telling us this, it just seems like getting to the point of a successful pregnancy is just so difficult and so many obstacles yeah it just it's such a difficult process and I recently caught up with her now that she's given birth because I wanted to find out if going through IVF has made for any issues that none IVF parents haven't had to think about yeah so that moment when she first came out of me was actually really really surreal because so I couldn't see the bottom half of my body this is big screen put up so I can't kind of see my blood and guts happening um I had a cesarean section just to be clear and this baby kind of appeared and she was whisked off to be cleaned and then came back and me and my husband kind of held her and looked at her and just thought she really doesn't look like either one of us at all. I mean, for one thing, her complexion did not look like she was an Indian baby, um, really. And I had an anesthetist who was standing right next to us who was Chinese. And she said to us, oh, she looks like a Chinese baby. And me and my husband just looked at each other. And for a second, we could see that each of us was thinking the same thing, which was, I really, really hope they put the right embryo in during our IVF procedure. Wow, that, that, I can't even imagine what that's like when you've just like given birth and you just like have these doubts about, oh my God, that's mind blowing yeah. to me. I remember my mum like joking to us when we were little about how we would have been swapped at birth, but for that to like be a reality. I know, geez. I know. Um, I mean, being like mixed race we've sort of had that as well like particularly when I was growing up you know people would say to my mum like oh she can't be your daughter she's far too white um <laughs> yeah but yeah <laughs> she was pretty sure I was her daughter um yeah so like it like we're joking about it now it seems like a funny story on the surface but that's something that is quite unique to someone who's gone through this process. Like imagine that split second fear of not knowing if it's your baby or not. And, you know, knowing that the, the chance may be tiny, but like there is a chance. Um, so, you know, not just this story, but sort of thinking more broadly, I asked Roma a bit more about how her mental health has been since she gave birth. I've had some challenges with my mental health around this whole journey. So, you know, starting with the IVF, I did have bits and pieces of counselling through that phase. I had a bit of counselling during my pregnancy itself because I was so anxious about things going wrong. Um, I was anxious about the birth, so that was another big thing. 
Um, and then with the struggles with breastfeeding. So there was the fact that kind of mentally I felt like, oh, I'm failing at this whole thing. But I was also actually in a lot of physical pain. So I was getting blocked in my ducts. I was getting a lot of lumps in my breasts. And, you know, it was it was constantly being in pain. And then every time she would cry and she'd be hungry, I'd be recoiling and saying, oh, my God, I have to feed her. So I was almost scared of her in in a way. And I think all of that together has had an impact on my mental health kind of coming into the long term, coming into now. And what I was surprised by or what I didn't expect, perhaps, is that my mental health was actually kind of okay for the first few weeks, maybe even few months. And it got worse. And it was the worst, actually, when I was trying to stop breastfeeding. So what I found interesting about that was obviously being, you know, science background engineer, I wanted to see if there was any link between weaning, you know, reducing breastfeeding and declining mental health. And what I found was anecdotally, people used to say that, oh yeah, you know, my mom or my aunt or I had a bit of depression and anxiety when I was um, stopping breastfeeding. But I, I just think there hasn't been enough research, at least to my knowledge, to say that, yes, there is a definitive link between those two things. Do you think there was a particular reason why sort of weaning led to your mental health feeling worse? So my suspicion is that it was very hormone related. Um, having had IVF and pumping myself full of different types of hormones at, in different phases, but in very quick succession, I think it felt fairly clear to me that hormones can have such a big impact on how you feel mentally, physically, and, and all of it. And I felt that I understood and I've, I have read that your hormones are changing when you breastfeed and when you stop breastfeeding. So I think that there was a big hormonal component in that. Um, and I think the other thing was just the sheer pain that I was in on a daily basis. So every time I dropped a feed, so I did it so, so carefully and so gradually that it took me two months to stop breastfeeding. Um, and throughout those two months, basically every time I dropped a feed, I would get all this pain in my breasts and then it would just about settle down and I'd say, right, I need to drop the next feed. And then I would start it on this roller coaster again and ibuprofen and paracetamol, which are, you know, the safe drugs that generally clinicians recommend you can take during breastfeeding weren't really cutting it for me. So I didn't feel that I had very many options to even deal with the pain management side of it. That sounds like like a really tough experience. I just want to give you a hug. Um, <laughs> how did you find the experience of getting help, sort of both with the physical and the mental side of breastfeeding? So that's also been a bit of a mixed bag. I would say in terms of my local council's breastfeeding support, they were absolutely brilliant. So I used to go to them nearly weekly and I would keep discussing different techniques and different ways that I could try um, with the breastfeeding and how to ease the pain and the lumps and the blockages and so on. And and I think that I'm just really lucky that we had an amazing team that was available on a weekly basis for drop-in. And if there was an emergency, they would even they even turned up to my house once on two hours notice to help me out, which was just brilliant. So, so that aspect was really great. Um, in terms of when I reached out around the mental health side of things, that was a bit of a mixed bag. So the first GP that I met about it 
sat me down, took me very seriously and suggested that, you know, I can self-refer for some support from, again, from my local council, which which I did sign up for. I then saw a different GP, I think it was a few weeks later for a slightly unrelated issue, which I can't even remember what it was, but I was obviously flagged in the system as being a postnatal depression risk. And it was a woman and she was a mum, which I think I found particularly disappointing about this interaction, where she, she listened to everything I had to say and then basically said, I don't think you have postnatal depression, it's just hard. And then there was yet another medical professional um, who happened to be also a mother who had IVF, who said the same to me. Mm-hmm. So I'd kind of seen these two medical professionals who said that in their opinion, I did not have postnatal depression. These GPs that I saw that um, asked me about my mental health, the first one that recommended me to you know, self-refer um, happened to be a man. And then the woman that I saw later who actually said to me, no, I don't think you have postnatal depression, happened to be a woman of color. So I think I found that in some ways kind of doubly disappointing because, you know, she was a mum as well. And, and um, I guess I did. I just expected maybe a bit more empathy from someone who was so similar to myself. Um, so as my mental health got worse and worse, kind of in the weeks and months following those two interactions, I kept telling myself, well, this isn't postnatal depression. I don't know what's wrong. So this has to be something else. And, you know, in retrospect, I think that those were, that was really unhelpful for them to have said that. So what kind of transpired from there was that I, so I did self-refer to this service that was the first GP recommended, which offered um, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it's a set of techniques that kind of teach you how to deal with the situations that you're in to help you control your anxiety and worrying and so on. And I was having a lot of issues around sleep as well. So I would get advice like, oh, you should not have naps during the day and you should have a very strict routine about your bedtimes to help you um, basically build up your tiredness so that you can sleep well. And I was like, I have a newborn who wakes up for a feed every three hours. Not really sure how that's going to work. Um, so finding that specific help to my situation, I think has been a really big challenge. Um, and actually kind of, as we speak, I think we may have found actually a charity that operates in London that might be able to help me. So, you know, I'll be able to tell you a bit more about that kind of in a few weeks time, but at at this point in time, I'm quite hopeful that they can actually address my specific issues. What, what do you think have been some of the best parts of it all? Um, yeah, so, I mean, first of all is the fact that, you know, I completely appreciate and I'm so grateful for the fact that I got pregnant with IVF because I think, you know, we need to keep in mind that IVF doesn't work out for everyone. So the fact that it even happened for us is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and I really appreciate that. She is like completely and utterly the center of attention now. So... That's that's another strange thing that happens once you've had a baby. So you've just given birth. In my case, I'd been cut open. I've got, you know, a new child. I'm trying to breastfeed, no sleep, all of this. Um, people are much more interested in your baby once the baby's arrived. Um, 
And it was amazing, especially in the first few weeks, the amount of aunties that turned up with rice and Indian food and sweets was just the best thing ever. So I did enjoy the big um, interfering family in that context. And then I think seeing her develop has been a joy. So the first three months, babies are pretty much lumps that vomit and poo and feed and, and that's that's kind of all they do but when she, when she hit around four months and suddenly she was smiling at me and even giggling and she learned how to roll over and then she learned how to sit and she loves food and she loves playing with tiny objects and you know we know how to make her laugh now and you know that that has really been an absolute joy um and I think there's a kind of nerdy part of me as well in all of this where, you know, when she learns a new skill or whatever, then I kind of go away and look up, well, ooh, what's this new skill? And then it tells me a bit about how her brain is developing, which allows her to use pincer movement between her forefinger and her thumb, which which is a big skill that babies learn at some point. So so there's definitely like a scientific nerdy interest in, in how she's developing as well. Um, <laughs> But I think my my overall takeaway is that like when I hear her giggle and laugh, I now just say that that's, that's the best sound in the world for me. So we've come to the end of the episode and it's been really interesting to find out all of this. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. Like most of this stuff I had definitely not thought about. And, you know, coming from uh, another person's perspective, firsthand, someone who's gone through it, and from uh, a person of colour, it's just really, really amazing to hear. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, like, we'd like to say a massive thank you to all of the doctors and researchers that helped us with this episode. And, of course, Roma herself for sharing her story and for being so clued up on all the science and engineering involved as well. Our next episode is the last in this mini-series, Exploring Health Conditions. We'll be talking about dementia and finding out how researchers are trying to change the way these sorts of conditions are diagnosed to be more inclusive for ethnic minority communities. And we'll be finding out just how much of an impact it can have when your language doesn't even have a word for a concept. People have... People have these rose-tinted spectacles and think, oh, yes, back home, everything will be so much better. How will it be better with dementia when we don't even have a word for dementia? How would it be better if we if we say someone's bug or, you know, mad or normal? How would it be better um, if the society that you think is going to become closer to you shuns you even more than over here? I think we have these very idealistic uh, dreams about how people would be looked after. We don't even understand dementia in some countries. We don't even have appropriate services. We don't even have a way to diagnose somebody. So how on earth, what is, is, the, is the servant in the house going to be the one to look after? And I can tell you, somebody did this. Somebody brought their mother from the house. Have you seen that movie where, like, 
it's like a dystopian film where no one can have babies. That children of men. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, that film was deep. It was incredibly deep. <laughs> um, you need to go watch this as I research. Seen, I saw an episode of, like, when, just kind of giving away a bit more nerdiness, of Stargate, SG-1. Stargate, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there was... A- <laughs> <laughs> I'm not nerdy enough for this. I'm like going to leave. Stargate's yeah. good. Stargate's good. There was an episode where... Um, <laughs> there was an alien race that could live for about a thousand years yeah. and they moved into Earth and they were like, oh, we're really going to live together and we're going to have a symbiotic relationship with humans. And basically what they did was they poisoned all the water yeah. so that humans went infertile cause, and they just waited it out until like that whole generation died and then they would have the planet to themselves. Whoa. Spoilers. <laughs> Whoa, that's kind of fucked up. <laughs> so, you know, talking about something like this... Um, you know, a certain level of emotional maturity, like, you know, even though we are who we are, like, a certain level of emotional <laughs> Talk maturity. yourself. Like, the certain level of emotional maturity you're going through. And then right at the end, when you brought up Stargate <laughs> SG-1, and you're here like, oh, yeah, you know what you got to do? Just get some aliens coming in. <laughs> some aliens. And just, 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 just fuck up Ultimately, it doesn't matter because aliens, aliens going to kill us. <laughs> if History Channel taught us anything, it's always aliens. Just saying. And that's where we end. <laughs> 